And now for our sermon for today, Elder Lawrence Gregory with a message entitled, Consider This. Good afternoon. As it's uh, been said several times already, it's a beautiful snowstorm. The uh, trees and uh, the grass and the grounds are beautiful, but uh, so far the roads seem to be clear, so that's, that's good. A little bit on the windshields, but it's a beautiful day uh, amidst this uh, holiday season that's just about over. Started a little early this year, back in September. And uh, seems like it gets longer and longer every year, but uh, this ending of 2014, we see uh, so much of the business and capitalization and uh, the paganism coming into this time of year. So uh, we know this holiday season, it's based on good and bad. And the good is there's a little bit of truth mixed in with what is presented. And the bad is the pagan corruption, the commercialism, the falseness. It's uh, based on a big lie that is told about a truth, if you can put that together. So since we know a lot of this about the holiday season and we've heard messages in the past, I'm going to skip that and leave that with what I've said here and what we know and ask us, to consider this. I'm going to change my subject a little bit here today and ask us to consider this about uh, in uh, our recent Bible study we had a scripture that uh, interjected a lot of uh, conversation and we want to consider that verse today and uh, see some possibilities surrounding it and it's uh, from Jeremiah the seventh chapter verse 16. Let me read this verse. Therefore, pray not you for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Now that's an interesting scripture that uh, is uh, presented to us. And there's several possibilities that we want to look at, but we're told here not to pray uh, well, Jeremiah was told by God, don't pray for these people. Don't even intercede for them. And I'm not going to hear you if you do. So, what are some things we can learn about that? Well, the first one is, we need to decide, does this scripture give application to us? Is there something that we can learn from this? Or is uh, it just a direct command from God to Jeremiah and only concerned about uh, his communication with Jeremiah centuries ago. Now notice here, he wasn't told, or he was told not to pray for this people. Neither lift up, cry, nor prayer for them. Neither give intercession. Now, this word for, uh, it can mean uh, several things to us. That is, it can be on behalf of something or in support of it. So, God is telling Jeremiah, don't pray on behalf of this people in support of what they're doing. Now, we want to ask, uh, 
Why? Was that because of uh, individuals or the mass or what was going on in uh, Jeremiah's day in uh, Israel, in, in Judah and Jerusalem? Now, he was prophesying in the 6th century before Christ, so it was, uh, he was in Jerusalem, so it was directed more to the Jews and those that were in Jerusalem there. But let's just back up a verse and see maybe why God said this. Verse 15 and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. So he's appealing to a historical precedence here of a hundred and some years before when he cast the northern tribes of Israel, the capital of Samaria, and uh, the uh, uh, tribe of Ephraim, emphasis of the Israelites. Uh, and he's showing from an example that just as they sinned and I got rid of them, I'm going to do the same for here. Now, let's uh, just hold in abeyance our uh, complete uh, thought about this yet and go to a couple of more verses here. Let's go to chapter 11 ahead in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 14. And we're told again by him to Jeremiah, Therefore, pray not you for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. And then back up just a little bit here in uh, verse uh, 8 of this same chapter here. He says in uh, chapter 11 verse 8. Yet, uh, talking about uh, the Jews, Jude at that time in the 6th century. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And in uh, verse 10, They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Now, that's in chapter 11, verse 14, we read. It's interesting, chapter 14, verse 11, ahead, let's read that verse, chapter 14, verse 11. Then said the Lord unto me, pray not for this people, for their good. So he was taking uh, a view of the whole nation, the whole representation of those people, pray not for them, for their good. So, that's how we begin to learn some things here about our prayer. We can pray, and we'll see a little more of this as we progress through here, for the individual, for their conversion, for God's individual uh, intercession in their life, and for their good and their help. But there's a time when the will of God is determined that I'm going to punish that people for their sins. And we want to accept the will of God and what He is going to do because we know, those of us who know the truth, we know that God is a God of mercy and love and He's going to give all of those innocent folks a second chance. Now the deliberate persons that are deliberately, we'll talk about that a little later, are making those decisions are unrepentant, uh, unchangeable, that just determine, I'm going to go uh, this way regardless of what God says. He's going to deal with them in a different matter. But the people that are innocent, that uh, 
may be caught up in his judgment and discipline because sometimes the innocent people suffer right along with the uh, righteous. God is going to have an opportunity for them to know freedom and justice and good and love. So we can just keep that kind of in the, in the back of our mind here. Now, in verse 10 here, while we're at chapter 14, back up to verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord unto this people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord will not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. And so God has determined, I'm going to send punishment and judgment and discipline on this people. So Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Don't intercede for them because I'm going to do it and don't ask anything for their good. Oh God, divert this. Now, we can look ahead and we can know that many scriptures show, brethren, there's a holocaust ahead. There's horrible times that our beloved Israel people are going to be suffering just as much of the third world is suffering now under despotic leadership and poverty and, and rejecting God and his blessings in their life. And so they're not participating in them. But we don't like to think of our beloved nation. So we have to be careful. We don't want to pray and ask God, well, just change everything, change all your prophecies and don't send any judgment and just let them get away with it. No. We can pray directly and intercede for those that we know, loved ones, or for individuals that God will hear and spare and make it easy. You know, he says that he can protect them, and I don't fully understand during those troubled times how God will do that, uh, uh, but he says that he can deliver out, and he can be with, and he can bless, and he can protect. So we have to just, just leave that up to God and how he's going to... Uh, uh, exercise his will on those innocent ones and protect them. So maybe that's part of it that we can um, uh, not pray that God will divert all of his judgment and sin against the whole nation, let everybody escape and just change all of his prophecies, or we can intercede for a few individual cases. Now, we're told by Jesus in uh, Matthew, the 10th chapter, let's go to Matthew 10th chapter, and here was some instruction that he was giving to his disciples as he sent them out to uh, minister. We'll just read uh, uh, a few verses here, beginning in chapter 12, uh, verse 12 of Matthew 10, as he was uh, talking to his disciples. And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. So here, you know, he's told us elsewhere, we won't go judge righteous judgment. Now, people have said, oh, don't judge, you, you condemn them. You know, we have to make a decision. Are these people worthy or are they unworthy? Are they going to listen? If so, if so, then they will accept and we can have an intercourse with them and uh, uh, help them and inspire them and encourage them. But if they reject it, they turn away and reject God, then he tells us just turn away from them, make a decision, leave them alone. Uh, and there's a number of times in the Old Testament where God told Moses, even others, just leave me alone. I'm going to do this. Don't, don't intercede. Leave me alone. And sometimes we have to make that determination against an individual. If we know 
certain things that they have rejected God and His way, just leave them alone and shake the dust off of our feet against that person because they're going to be held accountable for whether they accept it or not. Now, uh, let's go to another instance here in the life of Jesus in the book of John, the 17th chapter, verse uh, 9, John 17, 9. Midst uh, a number of these verses, he said, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours. Father, Jesus is making a distinction. I don't pray for the world. Let them continue on in their way. I pray for those you've given me and called out. And so, we can ask God, call out someone, give them your calling and bring them into your truth and into your church and into your way of life and bless them and we'll, we'll pray and that you'll be with them and in hardship and difficulty. But the rest of the world, the, the God-rejecting carnality and the worldliness and the wickedness, just leave them alone. Now, Paul, so Paul uh, had to face this in his ministry Let's read here in Acts, the uh, 18th chapter, Acts 18, verse 6. And, uh, well, now, he's, he, Paul is ministering and, and preaching the gospel. Verse 6, and when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment, and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. So those Jews that rejected Jesus and Paul's preaching and his message, Paul shook his raiment, shook the dust off. He said, I'm going to leave you to your end, and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to go to somebody that will listen, that will respond. Now, everybody is not going to hear, but many of them will. And so Paul made that decision. Now we can say, well, Paul made a bad judgment. I mean, he, you mean he just turned away from somebody and said they're not going to accept it and left them alone and left them in their devices and turned back to possibility and the potential of uh, who and, and what? Yeah, that's just exactly what Paul did. Now let's go to uh, 1 John 5.16. 1 John 5.16. This is Apostle John. And he's talking about uh, prayer, the confidence we have. If we believe, if we know, then we'll have the petition that we ask. But verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. And he shall give him life, that's God, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. We know there's a sin unto death. There are sins that are not unto death. There are, we, we would call them um, 
uh, lighter sins, just casual sins that a person does. Sin is sin. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We know sin is missing the mark. But there's some sin that's more horrendous, like blasphemy, cursing God, cursing the Holy Spirit. We'll see that. Rejecting God, rejecting His truth. That's a lot more serious than somebody who just stumbles under temptation and happens to eat some uh, bacon inadvertently. You know, it was on the sandwich, and then they found out, oh, I better get rid of that. That was pork, and I took a bite of it and swallowed it, and, and you know, uh, they did that inadvertent. Now, we can, we can quibble about what is uh, venal and what is mortal sin, and the Catholics have got it all identified, and uh, we, we don't want to go that far. But notice the last phrase he said, I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, John was kind of stymied here, and he left us, as many of us are, confused. Uh, some people commit a sin that's worthy of death, and some of their sins are not worthy of death, but uh, I don't know whether to, if I see somebody commit a sin of blasphemy, of uh, apostasy, of corruption, of violating, and there's not many of that, but we know that sometimes there are people who reject God and His way and just trample all over His truth, and, and it's very blatant. And even John said, I don't know whether I should pray for forgiveness for that person or not. He, he was, and that's the way many of us are, sometimes a little bit ambivalent about uh, whether we should make that judgment and that decision or not. Now, let's go to uh, James, the fifth chapter here. Back up a little bit. James 5. Fourteen through fifteen. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So this is a believer and a brother or someone that we know that uh, is requesting, you know, they want God to heal them. They want God to make them well. And so they recognize the ministry of the church of God and they request that blessing. And so we pray for them and ask God to heal them. And that's done out in the open and clear. But notice here in the last couple of verses of uh, verse 19 and 20, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. So here's another uh, situation where we know that we see somebody, a brother, uh, if any of you err from the truth and uh, they fall away and they start uh, going into some worldliness again, we can pray and ask God, you know, help that person and forgive them and know that God can do that and He will do that and we believe that He will do that. But then we have within that category another person who is deliberately, hard-set, willful, determined. I'm not going to go God's way and curse Him and blaspheme His Holy Spirit and, and that's we see a little different category than a person who just stumbles and, and uh, makes uh, some inadvertent sins. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, back up some more here. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, we read, Pray without ceasing. Uh, we're told continue in prayer and to be always in an attitude of prayer and to pray continually. So it's good for us to pray. It's good for us to make those uh, good positive determinations and pray for people and where we have a need and maybe some wayward brethren that, have, that used to meet with us that no longer attend because of uh, uh, maybe some conflicts or whatever. Now, there's, there's reasons, uh, age, handicap, disabilities, distance. You know, a lot of folks have a lot of uh, different real uh, determining reasons that they can't attend services. But we should pray for those people and, and God be, be with them and bless them and encourage them and remember that they're brethren and sometimes it's uh, not possible for everyone to meet here. But someone who just turns back into the world and deliberately goes back and, and gives up on God and uh, is uh, uh, totally, then we, totally rejecting God, then we have to make a decision and how far and when are we going to pray for them and, and leave them in God's hands or... Uh, maybe God will uh, bring them to repentance. So I think probably the gist of it is that we probably pray for most people and continue to pray for them and continue to ask God to intercede for them. But uh, sometimes just we know that leaving the final outcome up to God is uh, in his hands. Now, in uh, Matthew, the 12th chapter, let's go there, Matthew 12, 31, 32. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world neither in the world to come. So a person can, you know, in our view, can make uh, a lot of words against Jesus, you know, reject him and reject the church and reject. But there seems to be a distinction. When they start blaspheming and speaking against and rejecting the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit, the mind, the power of God, that draws a person, that convicts them. So if they reject that and they curse that, how, how is God going to call them? And so this is something that's very serious. and We, everyone, need to understand this and be careful that we don't ever get to that point where we reject Jesus, where we reject God, where we reject the Holy Spirit, where we turn against Him and just give up on everything, give up on His calling through His Spirit in Luke the uh, 12th chapter and verse 10. Again, whosoever, he repeats this again at another time, whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. 
Very clear. So if someone blasphemed the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't do us any good to pray for that person, would it? Pray for their conversion. God's not going to hear them. They, they've rejected. They've turned their back on God and His Holy Spirit, and so they won't respond. But a person that, you know, commits a sin or falls away into uh, apostasy, you know, we ought to reach out to that person, encourage them if we can, pray for them if we can, until or unless they have deliberately rejected God. In Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verse 4, 4 and through 6, Hebrews, the sixth chapter, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. This is, this is very strong, isn't it? Very cautionary, very warning. Person that blasphemes God's Holy Spirit, they're not going to be able to have forgiveness. They're not going to be able to draw close to him. Not going to be able to return to him. So, this is a serious verse in Jeremiah. And we have to leave it in our relationship with God. How far do we apply that in our personal life? Or was it just God's specific direction at that particular time to Jeremiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem? And then transfer that to us on making our decisions and our determination and our judgments in the life of other individuals. So we have to consider the will of God. And... Uh, what uh, he is uh, saying to us and what he wants us to do. Now, we know this. He's determined to punish and to bring judgment on sinning man and sinning Israel. And in the future, Israel, God's people, around this world, nations are going to suffer great judgment of God. He's going to punish this whole world and bring them into a time where in the future there's going to be prosperity and blessings and forgiveness and good and mercy and kindness and a lot better life in the future than they have now. So uh, we just leave that uh, decision up to God and how he's going to uh, make that determination and do the best we can to fit in with that and uh, do what we feel is best between God and us in our prayers and for those individuals who thought being overly critical, but yet making uh, just and right judgments. Okay, now I'm going to change just a little bit here uh, the pace of uh, what we're uh, talking about here and uh, share with you uh, some recent letters, and I've done this over the years, uh, different times, uh, letters that we receive to uh, Church of God Outreach Ministries, to CGOM, uh, which the Tulsa Church is a big sponsor and a big uh, uh, supporter of that uh, outreach work that's going all over this world and to all the nations. And uh, I have a first uh, a couple of letters that I want to read here, some 
And I'm not going to identify the persons and all of the uh, letters, uh, like this first one here is uh, several pages, but uh, just let me uh, address uh, the work here of the letter. I wanted to write this letter to say thank you. I sincerely thank you all for answering my questions and for the copy of CGOM's Statement of Beliefs. It was all very helpful. My mom and I are both very proud of our Bible lessons. They're informative and very thorough. I have come to consider you all my friends. That's what the word says here. Uh, you have helped me when I needed it. You all are true Christians. And you do a great service in spreading God's truths. I sincerely thank you for everything. I wish more people were like you all. This would be a much better world. Very well said. I wish I could afford to send y'all some money, but please know you are in my prayers. I truly believe that y'all are the true church, and I'm so thankful that I have y'all's Bible lessons. Anyhow, well, it's anywho, anywho, <laughs> I guess any, any of us, anywho of us, I apologize for being so long-winded. It's three pages. I sincerely thank you all for your time. Take care, and God bless you. And uh, we appreciate that uh, positive uh, letter and the inclusion here. Now, here's another one. Uh, to whom it may concern. Let me start this letter off by saying, My mom and I truly love your Bible study course they're more in-depth than a lot of the Bible study courses I've received in the past from other churches. Sabbath-keeping churches, of course. And a little happy face. And uh, then in conclusion. Anyhow, that's all for now. I do sincerely thank you all for the Bible lessons. I thank you for your time. Take care, and God bless you. I think that's from the same person. I'd have to look research that a little more closely. Okay, now, here's another letter that's addressed to us, and uh, so uh, we've covered this in times past, but we, I sent a response back to the person and then an article uh, so they could have a little more uh, information. Uh, and they ask in this uh, question here, what are the reasons that God's church does not have nor allows women ministers and preachers. So, that is a question, and we sent uh, an article, Should Women Preach, by Roderick Meredith, written back in 1955, to uh, the person. And uh, then I uh, made some replies to the person here in reply to your questions about women preachers. That's, uh, if you want to turn here, we'll, we'll in a minute, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. In reply to your questions about women preachers, Jesus only called men to be apostles and evangelists. He only called men. Remember that. Yes, women can become the righteous daughters of God called to equality of salvation. God can call women just as well as men, his, his sons and his daughters, to be in his family and to have salvation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.34, let's 
Turn there, 1 Corinthians 13, 34. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.34. Did I say 13? Yeah, 14.34. Here's the scripture. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. Now, does this mean to us that women can't talk in the church? when we come in fellowship and when we have services here, that uh, the fellowship time before and after, does that mean they can't talk or speak? No. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, it is not permitted for a woman to speak, that is preach, in the churches. The word spoken, the word speak, is from the Greek word laleo, meaning to preach, to talk, to utter, to speak. This Greek word is translated a number of times in English as the word preach. So, Paul is saying it's not permitted for women to preach in the church. We don't have any such custom, he says, he explains that. Now, I know there was one time uh, that I'd heard a woman preacher was uh, talking and she said, well, I asked my husband and he said it was okay that I do this. So, she's putting the word of her husband above the word of God. Now there's a reason why women should not presumptuously step out of the bounds of their godly calling. Women may teach other women, children, but not the men. Titus 2, 3, 1 Timothy, I don't have the scriptures here, 2, 11 through 14. Even though they may have a great understanding and ability, they should show obedience to God's way 1 Corinthians 14, 34. There are many ways they can serve God without being an ordained minister. And um, I was uh, uh, impressed at the funeral for Donald Jackson. Uh, Maynard was uh, directing uh, comments. And, uh, and one of the concerns that Don had was that he could serve the church. And Maynard was telling him, well, he can serve the church in a lot of ways with his music and his fellowship and his uh, uh, greetings and prayers in a lot of ways without necessarily being a preacher because God hadn't necessarily called him to be that. Now, that's the way, and we're not putting any women down because women have a great opportunity and a great ability and a great intellect, but part of their responsibility is to be subservient to the will of God, right? And to listen to God. And what he says is preaching and pastor and ministry that's reserved to God and his calling of men, not to the women. There are a lot of things women can do. Oh, you mean just work in the kitchen? You mean, you know, there were women that were very capable and are very capable, and sometimes they can be deaconesses and serve and uh, work in the church, but there are limits that God has put for a reason. Now, no woman wants to be presumptuous and self-willed, does she? and work in an element where God hasn't called her, does she? Doesn't want to be a preacher or a pastor or get on television and have a big following and be the famous preacher, does she? No woman wants to do that, does she? Oh, oh some do? Okay. Now, here's again, this is hard for some to accept, and we're not putting women down. I'm not a woman hater. I love a woman, <laughs> my wife. 
got to be careful how you say that. If you say, I love women, you can get in trouble. So we got to be careful. But we know what we're saying here, and I'm impressing this because this is a decision we have to make. How far, am I gonna, how far are we going to go in this, and how far are we going to permit it? In the Old Testament, there were a couple of prophetesses. In the New Testament, evangelists had four daughters that were prophesied. They were prophesying. It doesn't say they were preachers, ministers, pastors, does it? They were inspired speakers. Women can very well explain the Word of God and talk to other women and talk to children, and we, can, we have a place for them and respect that. It's just that there are certain things that uh, are reserved. In Revelation, the second chapter, verse 2, a certain woman was likened to Jezebel who called herself a prophetess. She was condemned for this. She called herself rather than God calling. Oh, I'm by somebody very important. Now, we want to just leave that uh, question there. And I have... Uh, uh, a few more uh, questions here. Let me see. Uh, uh, this one is, uh, has uh, three questions in it. Uh, to whom it may concern. And uh, the question is about um, uh, bishops and deacons and why we don't have in the Church of God, Sabbatarian Church, why we don't designate the word bishop. Because uh, this word, like in uh, Philippians 1.1, the word uh, Paul is talking to... Uh, uh, the brethren there, and he identifies them, uh, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. And uh, the uh, partial answer to this is in um, the um, practice of the church of God and what the word bishop means, an overseer. Now, we have overseers, we have pastors, we have uh, ministers, we have elders, uh, sometimes we've even identified over a congregation a host, someone who's unordained, would be uh, the overseer of that congregation. But usually the bishop is a uh, term that is uh, designated in some of the Catholic and Protestant churches as a point of rank rather than a point of service. And so if you take the word and look in the original Greek and uh, see what uh, is uh, said there, you will see that he's talking about an overseer or a minister or uh, we would say sometimes a pastor of the church. So sometimes the translators meant well and they'll use some English words that are uh, better translated, maybe a, in a different English word. Uh, those of you who have studied words and studied the Bible know that this is the case. Now, the second uh, question here is uh, about what was in the ark, because let's, let's look at a couple of verses here uh, in um, 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verse 10, 2 Corinthians, because it looks like there's a, a contradiction in the scriptures here, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Uh, I mean, Second Chronicles. Second uh, Chronicles five verse ten. Not Corinthians Chronicles. It says here, Second Chronicles five ten. There was nothing 
in the ark, save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box. We know that it was overlaid with gold and had a mercy seat on top. And it was approximately two and a half feet tall, two and a half feet wide, and about three and a half feet long. Now, it says here, this is at the time of the dedication of the temple in about 1000 A.D., uh, B.C., time uh, when David and Solomon had built the temple and they were bringing the ark into it. And so uh, it's very clearly said here, there was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone, the commandments that God had given Moses, he wrote with his finger and told him to put them hundreds of years later, 400 years before, put those in the ark. Now, let's go to uh, Hebrews, the ninth, ninth chapter, verse 4. Because Paul says something here in the New Testament that brings up a question. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 4. Well, let me start, uh, even though I don't have the verses, let me start at verse 1. Then verily the first covenant that had also the ordinance of divine service and a worldly sanctuary the Holy of Holies and the Holy of Holies, the temp, the tabernacle service that we understand that was with them for 38 years during those wilderness wanderings. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and this little tent that was inside the larger area. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of holy the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with the gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, that over it the cherubims of glory shadowed the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, here's a question. Is Paul saying, and this is where we have to read very carefully here, is Paul saying that in the ark was the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, the, the pot of manna, and later we have another scripture that says about the uh, uh, book of the law that was written, uh, that was put in the ark. Now, were those all in the ark, or is what Paul's saying here is that wherein, in this, in this Holy of Holies, it had the golden censer, it had the golden pot, it had the ark, it had the Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant and commandments, and then later we know. Now, we know later that they found the uh, book of the law in the temple, uh, in the tabernacle. And they, uh, Joshua, in Joshua's day, and he read through it. And so it was forbidden for anyone to look in the ark. They had to treat that very carefully. Only the Levites could transport that back and forth. And so somewhere by the time, now this is where we have to speculate, and, and what we know here is, uh, I'll just say this, we don't know for sure until the future we can ask God to tell us what was really the case there.
because right now it's speculation. But we know when the ark was opened at the time that the temple was constructed, about uh, 400 years after the, the uh, tabernacle wilderness wandering in the 1400s, about 400 years later, the ark was empty. It had only had the Ten Commandments in it. So, was Paul misunderstanding, or what happened in the interim between the wilderness and the temple? What happened to those items? Now, here's another thing, and we have a, a few more scriptures here to read, and then we have some uh, summary thoughts here. But uh, this word, Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod that budded, you know, when God used it at the time. Well, let's go back at uh, the time in Exodus, the 16th chapter, Korah's rebellion, and God was showing uh, who was to be his spokesman and who was to be his priest. And uh, Exodus, first we'll just look at this, and then we'll go to Numbers, Exodus, 16th chapter, verse... Uh, 32, 34, let me get there. Exodus 16. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded. Fill an omer of it, that's of the manna, for your generations, that you may see the bread wherein wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take ye a pot, and put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord, to be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Notice, before. He didn't put it inside. He laid it before the testimony uh, to be kept. And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. And we know when they crossed over and they went into uh, the Holy Land, the manna ceased there at that time. Now, this word for, uh, well, well, let's go to Numbers, the 17th chapter because uh, then we'll make concluding thoughts here. Numbers 17th chapter. This is at the time of uh, Korah's rebellion when he was taking upon himself. He wanted to be the spokesman. He wanted to be the uh, chief there. And uh, so in verse 8, chapter 17, And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron, so each one of the different uh, tribes of Israel had to put their name on the rod. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and blossomed, uh, bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And verse 10, And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels and you shall quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. Now, I'd like to read here from the Living Bible, and I don't know if Brian has the Living Bible scriptures here, but uh, let me read Numbers 17th chapter. 
and verse 8 and verse 10. The Lord told Moses to place Aaron's rod permanently beside the ark as a reminder of this rebellion. He was to bring it out and show it to the people again if there were any further complaints about Aaron's authority. So, here's, here's the question. Were these items put beside the ark of the testimony and never in it as the Hebrew, as uh, our English translations even indicate. So that, was Paul wrong, or was he saying wherein, the, the Holy of Holies, wherein was the Ark and the Covenant and the uh, Aaron's Rod, or was Paul saying that those items were inside the Ark? That's something that is a little unclear and we'll have to leave later and have a, have a question. Now, here's another concern. This chest is uh, approximately uh, 40 some inches. That's about three and a half inches, two and a half cubits long. Now, the word for Aaron's rod is also translated staff. And in some of the English Bibles, English translations translated a cane. So, a walking staff, like Moses and Aaron had, was it longer and taller would, it, would, would a staff that Moses used and Aaron used, a walking stick, would it fit in that little chest? Or was this a cane that he walked on that was shorter? Would that fit in? So we don't know because the Hebrew is used interchangeably. A cane, a stick, a staff. And there's a number of different Hebrew words that sometimes, uh, like if it's talking to the staff of a uh, uh, spear, uh, then it would be longer, like uh, Goliath's spear was, uh, had a longer staff on it than normal. So there's something we don't know. What was this Aaron's rod that budded and had all those apple, uh, almond blossoms and almond fruit? It fruited. It, it was a dead stick, but it had blossoms, it had buds, and it even had the fruit of almonds on it. And if it's necessary, like the scripture said, if he had to show his authority... He could go get that. Well, he couldn't get it out of the ark because that was closed up and that was sealed and permanent. But when they went to put the ark into the temple, they found out when they opened it, the Levites and things, that the only thing in there was the Ten Commandments of God. Now, here's another thing from history we don't know. When... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Babylon and burned the temple and sacked it and destroyed it and just cleared it off. What happened to that ark? Now, the indication is that Jeremiah took that ark with some of the royal daughters, the tribes of Zedekiah, the daughters, the royal house of David, took those to Egypt. And then uh, he was told to go back to Jerusalem, but he disappeared from sight. And he showed up, there's legends and history of him. You've heard me explain all this before, and I'm not going to go into a lot of explanation right now, of where he showed up in Jerusalem with his secretary, Simon Barak, with some princesses, because one of the princesses, one of the daughters, married another king in Spain, and then the other daughter, Tia Tefi, came with Jeremiah and married uh, into 
uh, one of the descendants of, uh, of the Levites there that, was, uh, that became king of uh, Ireland. And so the house of Pharaohs and the house of Zerah were healed and those breaches were brought together. One, the daughter was of one tribe, one, the daughter of another. And they uh, became and they transferred the royal throne of the house of David to Ireland. And then it went to Scotland. Then it went to England. And it says it's be overturned, overturned, overturned. And no more overturned until he comes who's right it is, until Jesus Christ comes. Now, there are charts and historical documentation very clearly that show that the Queen of Elizabeth that sits on the throne now is a direct descendant of King David. The Jewish line and there's other of the royal house of uh, Europe and some of those uh, kings and queens are in that royal descent. But Jesus Christ was born of Mary who was a direct descendant of David he has a right to sit on that throne. And God had said in the prophecies, I'm speaking a little longer here, that there would always be a man to sit on the throne. Now, there has always been a man, Jesus Christ has always been, except for the three days he was dead. But remember right today, uh, well, we have uh, from uh, Prince Charles, then we have William, and then we have uh, little uh, George, and they call him Prince George or King George. Cute little boy. Now he's going to have a little brother or sister. Uh, she, his mother is expecting another. We know all this. Well, which one of those descendants of Elizabeth, Charles or William or King George, or one of those will sit on that throne? We don't know. We know this. Jesus Christ, who is a direct descendant, is going to transfer that throne then from London, England, back to Jerusalem, back to Zion where he is going to be residing for the millennial time. That's a wonderful story. Now, uh, there is a historical precedence of uh, the thing of uh, Jeremiah, this old uh, saint that came to Ireland and where he's buried and, and that uh, chest and that ark is buried with him and the princess there and the kings. And there are charts. You can, you can see this. Uh, I've read a lot of these, and a lot of them back in 12, 13, 1400. They mean nothing to me, those names. But then when you get closer into the 1800s and the kings of uh, England that were in Scotland, and they begin to recognize some of these names a little more uh, currently, and then go back to David, you recognize that, and Jesus Christ, and, and you recognize those uh, names. But... Uh, it's real interesting about the history of the tribe of David and the descendants. And, uh, and God has said that the throne would come through uh, Judah, through Jews. David was a Jew and Jesus was a Jew. But the scepter would always be in Israel. And so... It is, those 12 tribes and 13, if you count Manasseh and the 13, and, and I don't want to go into all of that story there, but there is a king in waiting to sit on that throne of David in Jerusalem. And there's a really fascinating history about all of that and uh, confirmation. Now, uh, I had something else that I was going to go on, but I'm just going to leave that until some other time and conclude uh, my uh, message today with this uh, and just leave us to consider uh, some of the things that uh, oh there was uh, one more question here uh, this was the third question in those uh, two that I just mentioned the third one was 
One last thing. Um, the um, uh, book at USA and, and British Commonwealth of Prophecy was preached by Mr. Armstrong. Do you have any more of his stuff? <laughs> yes, we have. Writings and articles, Herman Hay, Roderick Meredith, others going back into the 50s and 60s with, uh, that are available through Church of God Outreach Ministries and correspondence courses, current, a lot of articles. Uh, we have uh, a, uh, like this, a little catalog with two pages of uh, brochures and uh, articles and many studies and things that uh, these folks are getting all over the world. And if any of us in the Tulsa Church would like uh, some of these old articles, or we have a question or a doctrinal thing, we have a box over here for questions. If you have something that you'd like to have uh, explained in a little more detail in a sermon or privately, we'd have to, happy to do that. If you have uh, something that you'd like to read, we have a lot of material that we make available free online on the website. You can go in to the Church of God Outreach Ministries website and read a lot of the uh, articles there. Uh, some of them all over the world we send out from the Tulsa area here. And some of you have helped in uh, distributing these and at times when we've got real busy and have a lot of work to do, we include others in helping uh, uh, send those out. And you've heard me explain this and talk about this before, but uh, I'll just leave it with that. If you would like uh, a catalog, would like some information, there's a lot of literature, a lot of articles over there. And uh, a lot of us old-time members, we, we know a lot of this. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but years ago I was explaining to something to somebody, and the person said, because I, I wrote this down, I didn't write the person's name, but they said, oh, I know everything about everything. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot I don't know. A lot I'm learning, a lot that we're coming into. I don't know everything about everything. And some of these articles and brochures put a little bit about something for us to consider. So I just ask today if you will consider this that I've presented today.